this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. <sighs> Dude, you hear that? That's the sound of a breakthrough. And you can have one too when you start working with a therapist. See what therapy can do for you at betterhelp.com super. What if I told you that Prim's reaping in the original Hunger Games was not random and instead part of a much, much bigger plan? Today's episode will contain spoilers for all of the Hunger Games books, including A Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Hey, brother! Oh man, you guys, I'll be the first to say that we do not cover Hunger Games a lot here on the Super Carlin Brothers channel, but that does not mean that we're not big fans. I personally just finished my latest pass of the series, and I've just been so pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoy it from start to finish, and that's including the latest installment, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. That being said, though, I feel like for the first time I was really starting to ask big questions about the overall narrative, like getting into the minds of the individual characters themselves. And possibly even more importantly, the deep overarching themes of the whole story. And as I worked through each installment of the series, I started to realize that all of my deepest questions all seem to be neatly tied together. All of which ultimately brought me to one really huge question. Was everything planned from the very beginning. A massive chess match being played behind the scenes by Al McCoyne of District 13 and Coriolanus Snow of the Capitol. And I do mean everything, from Prim being selected at the Reaping all the way up to the ultimate decision of Katniss to fire that final arrow at Coin instead of Snow. And as it stands, this story is already packed to the brim with battles, whether it's the Capitol versus the districts or the individual tributes within the arena, to the end where it's just all out war within the realm of Pan Am. And yet all the while, it feels like every single decision, every move is meticulously crafted and played by two leaders deep in the shadows, all of whom seem to be fighting for their own version of personal glory. So today we are going to break down the whole thing from start to finish, how every single move made is meticulously crafted by either coin or snow. Let's do it. Okay, so like I said, each step on this path all stem from a personal question of my own that all seem to come together to build the larger narrative. So my own personal first question is the ignition point for the entire series. It's the moment when Primrose Everdeen's name comes out of the reaping ball. Primrose Everdeen. How did this happen? Because as a recap, the way that your name is entered into the reaping ball in the first place is that if you are between the ages of 12 and 18 years each year, your name goes in automatically. So for example, at age 12, which happens to be Prim's age, your name goes in once. And then at 13, it will go in twice, 14, it will go in three times and so on. But in addition to that, it also stacks based on all of your prior year's slips. So for example, if it is your second year in the games and you have only entered the bare minimum, your name will be inside of the reaping ball three times, one for the first year and two for the second. And I have to imagine that the reason for this particular methodology is simply that the older the tribute happens to be, the more likely they are to be entertaining once they're ultimately in the games. But in addition to the required number of slips that go in with your name on them, there is also a way to exchange additional names for what is called Tessery. Tessery is enough grain and oil for one person for one year. And citizens of the district who are of age are able to add more of their names to the reaping ball in exchange for more Tessery based on the number of members of their family. Katniss does this for herself, Prim, and her mother in her first year, meaning that her first year she entered four names three for the Tessery and one for the standard submission. So by the time the 74th annual Hunger Games has arrived, Katniss has entered her name in the bucket 20 times and Gale, who is 18, has entered his 42. The odds are not in their favor. Meanwhile, Prim, who Katniss would not allow to take Tessery, has only entered her name once. And yet, somehow, she is the one whose name comes out of the reaping ball. And you might just think, a cruel irony. But, I volunteer! I volunteer! yes, of course you do, Katniss, because that was the plan all along. This is because I believe that 
This move right here is the very first step in Alma Coyne's plan to eventually overthrow President Snow, the Capitol, and take hold of Pan Am. Rig the reaping in District 12 so that Katniss can step in for her adorable younger sister and start winning the attention of the nation. And speaking of Prim, there can be no doubt that there is in fact a cruel irony to the fact that her name is the one that comes out of the reaping ball. It's just not the fact that it came out despite the fact her name has only been submitted one time. It's the fact that Prim's name being selected leads to Katniss volunteering for her, which is ultimately what starts the entire rebellion that takes down the Capitol. Katniss does everything to protect Prim. Before she's ever even in the Hunger Games, it's hunting and trading to ensure she's fed. Then she survives not just one, but two different Hunger Games. She ultimately becomes the beacon of the rebellion, the Mockingjay herself. A rebellion that, might I add, is ultimately successful in ending the Capitol's reign. All of that, all of that is in the name of protecting her younger sister, Prim. And despite all of that, Prim still loses her life in the final battle at the Capitol. And that is the cruel irony that you were looking for. But as a result, this is where I think our theory actually begins. Prim's selection at this reaping in no way, shape or form is random. I think it was instead an incredibly intentional and successful maneuver on the part of President Coyne. And this might seem far-fetched or even unlikely, but I don't actually think it is. I think rigging the reaping is something fairly common within the Hunger Games. Katniss even suggests it herself. Victor's children have been in the ring before. It always causes a lot of excitement and generates talk about how the odds are not in that family's favor, but it happens too frequently to just be about odds. Gale's convinced the Capitol does it on purpose, rigs the drawings to add extra drama. Beyond that, if we also go back to the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes and the 10th ever Hunger Games, we know that once again in District 12, Lucy Gray is specifically targeted and selected by the mayor who is doing it on behalf of his daughter. It was a gamble. Mayfair found out about me. I found out about her. She had her pa call my name in the reaping. I don't know what she told him. Certainly not that Billy Tope was her flame. Something else. We're outsiders here, so it's easy to lie about us. And I think the same thing is happening here with Prim and Katniss, except in reverse. Instead of the Capitol being the one to rig the reaping to select these in particular, I think it is Coyne who is working with the mayor of District 12 to get them in particular. Not to mention the mayor of District 12's daughter just so happens to be friends with Katniss, but more on her in just a second. The point I'm trying to make though is that I think Prim and Katniss have been watched for a very very long time and specifically selected for this mission. Meaning the person who selected them for the mission also knew that Prim was never the target. It was always Katniss. But why Katniss, you might be asking? What could they have possibly known about this young girl that would have told them she was their best shot? Well, we know inside of the Hunger Games itself, your every single move is being watched. And Katniss knows this instinctively. Inside of the games, it's probably her greatest skill. It allows her to read any given situation and also just have conversations with Haymitch based on what's going on inside of the games or what she's doing or not doing in return for gifts. Like when she desperately needs water and she knows Haymitch can send her water, she understands that, well, if he's not sending it to me, it must be the case I'm close. But it's also not just inside of the Hunger Games themselves, inside of the arena. It's also out in the districts. People are being watched more carefully than they realize. In fact, in Catching Fire, it is revealed that Katniss and Gale actually share a kiss outside of the fence where they're not even supposed to be. Somewhere where they assume are completely alone. But before Katniss's victory tour, President Snow shows up at her house inside of the Victor's Village to let her know that he knows about this situation, that he is always watching. By the way, I know about the kiss. If President Snow knows about this, then I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that President Coyne in District 13 and all of their advanced technology does as well. And this means that she too could have been watching and waiting for her perfect candidate, the perfect person to set all of the events in motion. And what she found was Katniss. I mean, heck, even geographically, it kind of makes sense that it would specifically be District 12 where they would choose their champion from. Because sure, maybe District 13 isn't able to monitor the entire nation all at once, but District 12 is their closest neighbor. We already know that District 12 seems to have 
lessened security relative to some of the other districts in the nation. And again, with the proximity in mind, it is very likely they would be the easiest ones to eavesdrop on. Not to mention, honing in on specifically a female candidate from District 12 in particular has some other very significant non-geographic based advantages, but we'll talk about that more in a minute. In any case, Coin settles in on Katniss, who against all odds has actually managed to develop quite a skill with a bow and arrow in order to feed her family, which shows her dedication to her family for one, but it's also something unique about her that might give her a fighting chance inside of the arena. And she's also the one who spends all of her time Time with Gail in particular out beyond the fence where they're not supposed to be where Gail constantly talks about his hatred of the capital. And she's the one who can easily and immediately win the hearts of everyone in the country when she steps in to protect her younger sister. Because that's the thing you have to remember before it's the whole Katniss and Peeta star-crossed lovers from District 12 thing. Katniss is the girl defending her younger sister, the underdog from District 12, the one who has somehow managed to scrape together an ability with a bow and arrow. From Coin's perspective, she literally could not have found a better candidate for this job. So Prim's name is called so Katniss can volunteer. But before Katniss can board the train to go to the Capitol, she is left inside of a building to say goodbye to her loved ones, her mom, her sister and Gail. Less usual, however, is the appearance of Madge, the mayor's daughter, who wouldn't you know it happens to be the only other girl in all of District 12 who happens to be Katniss's friend. Sort of. But this is a particularly huge part of the story because this is the moment when Madge gives Katniss the mocking J pin, which ultimately goes on to be the symbol of the entire rebellion. Coincidence? I mean, Maybe, but also I'm thinking probably not. Not that necessarily Madge in particular at this age is already part of the rebellion, but I think it's pretty likely that her father, the mayor, is. In fact, he could even be the one who suggests that Madge give Katniss this particular pin. Because the more that you learn about the Mockingjay and Snow in particular's relationship with this particular bird, it starts to make a lot of sense. Because as a refresher, Mockingjays shouldn't, or rather, should I say, didn't exist. They are instead the byproduct of the capital-created mutts, Jabberjays. Birds that have been specifically designed to record and recall specific bits of information that they heard. Unfortunately though, for the capital, the Jabberjay project completely and utterly backfires. Because they were originally created to spy on rebels before the first ever Hunger Games had ever taken place during the first war. Except the rebels at that time discovered what they were and were sending them back with false information. And this failed experiment was essentially just left to die out in nature because all of the Jabberjays that had ever been released were all male. They weren't supposed to be able to reproduce. But by some miracle, they were actually able to mate with just native mockingbirds creating a whole new species, mockingjays. And so just their accidental existence at all is thumbing its nose at the capital, proof that there is something out there that they simply can't control. On top of that though, President Snow himself has a hatred for these birds long before Katniss has ever embodied it. He first encounters one as a youth when he is working as a peacekeeper in District 12 and immediately hates them. A blackbird slightly larger than Jabberjays suddenly opened its wing to reveal two patches of dazzling white as it lifted its beak in song. Coriolanus felt sure he'd spotted his first Mockingjay and he disliked the thing on sight. And so I know what you're thinking. Okay, so he hated them, but how on earth would Coin know this particular piece of information about him? And the answer to that, I think, best lies at the mysterious ending of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, where Lucy Gray's fate is kind of unknown. Does she ultimately survive this final encounter with Snow? The book honestly leaves it pretty open for interpretation. Much like the character of Lucy Gray's own namesake in The Ballad of Lucy Gray, which in case you don't remember, is a story by a girl of the same name who gets lost in, wait for it, snow. And the question as to whether or not her ghost is still out there is just left up for debate. How poetic, which is fitting because it's a poem. Unbeknownst though to both Lucy Gray and Snow in this particular scene, the way in which they are exiting District 12 has them headed directly for District 13. So the question is, does Lucy Gray make it? And I think the answer to that question is 
Yes, and I think that she arrived with all of the information you might need to take down Coriolanus Snow. Heck, we even learn Snow's own fatal flaw in the opening chapter of A Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. His mind could fixate on a problem like that, anything really, and not let go, as if controlling one element of his world would keep him from ruin. It was a bad habit that blinded him to other things that could harm him. A tendency towards obsession was hardwired into his brain and would likely be his undoing if he couldn't learn to outsmart it. And what better way to distract Snow than with a Mockingjay in the form of a female District 12 tribute, Lucy Gray Reborn. Because even Lucy Gray herself is a Mockingjay. She's there by accident. And what I mean by that is she's a member of the Covey, a nomadic troop of performing travelers who just end up in District 12. Therefore, just like the birds, she is neither capital nor district. And just like the birds, she can sing. So if Coin can find someone as distracting as Lucy Gray and brand her as the Mockingjay, it's the ultimate distraction against Snow. And the cherry on top is the star-crossed lover's routine between Katniss and Peeta. If you know Snow's history, at all, there's no way in the world he's not going to see the similarities between Lucy Gray and Katniss. Her and Peta's story is just too similar to his own. In fact, I even think it's incredibly likely that this is how President Snow knows that Katniss is not in love with Peta, because Snow himself was in love with Lucy Gray. He can spot the difference. Speaking of Peta, though, let's talk about that for a second, because Katniss's kiss with Gale happens outside of the fences of District 12, and that is still somehow caught on camera. How hard might it have been to pick up on the one person in District 12 who had gone out of their way to help Katniss? What I'm trying to say, though, is that I think Peta himself was just as carefully selected as Katniss. Because while they've only had a small handful of interactions ever at all, the ones that they have had were massive. Peta has loved Katniss from afar long before the games ever happened. There's this one girl that I've had a crush on forever. So if you're looking for someone to become Katniss's ally inside of the games unknowingly, he's your pick. And I know exactly what you're probably thinking in this particular moment. Uh, what about Gale? He's obviously super in love with Katniss too. But I actually think that Gale is a bad pick because he's too capable. If he had been selected from District 12, he would be the obvious candidate from District 12. But that's not what they want. They need a capable person who won't outshine Katniss. Who they need is Peta. Moving on from being selected for the games, though, let's talk about the other tip of the hat that suggests that Coin has been involved with pulling the strings long before we're ever introduced to her. And that is the games themselves. The arena that Katniss is selected to participate in is the perfect arena for her skill set. Gosh, I've just spent my entire life out hunting in the woods. I wonder I wonder what the arena will be like. Oh, wow, it's exactly that. In addition to essentially having home field advantage, she is also paired with the perfect stylist in Cinna. After volunteering on behalf of Prim, Cinna steps in and immediately makes her stand out from the crowd. He is without a doubt the star stylist from this games, and this is his debut. Where has he been before now? And even if we fast forward for just a second, one full year later to the quarter quell that Katniss also has to participate in, we know that Cinna meets his fate before she even steps foot inside of those games, and yet he has also already designed her Mockingjay outfit. He has definitely been involved with the rebellion for some time. Plus, in addition to Cinna just making aesthetically pleasing and really interesting outfits, they're also typically very technologically advanced, the ability to light on fire without actually burning Katniss or Peeta. If he's a part of the rebellion and specifically District 13 and all of its technology, that could be how he's pulling some of this off. Beyond all that though, is the fact that Cinna specifically requests to work with Katniss, which historically, Girl from District 12? Not a very strategic move. You're new, aren't you? I don't think I've seen you before, I say. Most of the stylists are familiar, constants in the ever-changing pool of tributes. Some have been around my whole life. Yes, this is my first year in the games, says Cinna. So they gave you District 12, I say? Newcomers generally end up with us, the least desirable district. 
I asked for District 12, he says without further explanation. No further explanation. My goodness, is that sentence not there by accident? But Cinna is also overall super important to the overall plan, because as we learn very quickly within the Hunger Games, getting somebody's attention once isn't necessarily enough. Katniss protecting Prim in The Reaping was a great way to get spotted early, but then you have to maintain that attention. And that's where Cinna comes in. He is the ace in the hole. He keeps eyes on her always. But also, obviously, it's not just fancy dresses to contend with. It is the games themselves as well. And sure enough, we have yet another player who has been there from the very beginning. I'm speaking, of course, of Plutarch Heavensby, the head game maker for the third quarter quell, or Katniss's second Hunger Games. But he's also super important and massive leader within the rebellion, and I think his role is much more important much sooner than we thought. For one, we simply know that he was there during Katniss's first ever Hunger Games. He's the one that Katniss shot an arrow at and knocked backwards into a bowl of punch. He actually confirms that this was in fact him when they meet at the president's mansion during their victory tour a year later. Oh, you're the one who, I laugh, remembering him splashing back into the punch bowl. Yes, and you'll be pleased to know I've never recovered, says Plutarch. But this isn't the only bit of information that Plutarch reveals during this particular exchange. The other is that each of the respective games that the audience is watching each year has been in production for a long time. Oh yes, well, they've been in the works for years, of course. Arenas aren't built in a day, but the, shall we say, flavor of the games is being determined now. Believe it or not, I've got a strategy meeting tonight. We eventually learn that Plutarch is speaking in all sorts of codes here and trying a little bit to help Katniss know some details about the arena for the third quarter quell. But what it also tells me is that if Plutarch was a game maker during Katniss's first ever games, then it stands to reason that he has been there long enough to know which arena was going to be happening when. So what I think happened is that at least some years in advance, Coin and Plutarch were able to identify Katniss as their ultimate candidate. And they knew that the year that Prim was going to enter the reaping was the year to strike. Which also means that for years in advance, Plutarch could have been pulling strings behind the scenes to make sure that this arena was used on this particular year. Granted, and to be fair, he is not the head game maker for this particular games, but he is basically the head of propaganda and therefore knows a thing or two about manipulation. So something tells me it wasn't that hard to convince Seneca Crane to use this particular arena. All that being said, if Plutarch was capable of swaying any other factor, it may be a role very similar to Sinus, keeping Katniss as the center of the conversation before the games. And as a game maker, he is able to ensure that Katniss receives a sky-high 11 going into the games. So before ever even stepping foot in the games, Katniss has volunteered for her adorable younger sister, has Peta, a boy who is actively and genuinely in love with her as her fellow tribute, Cinna, who absolutely blows the competition away as her stylist, the highest game maker score of any tribute, and slated for a games very tuned for her specific set of skills. From her point of view, this is all random, but like, Oh my gosh, if it is, because a lot of things outside of her control seem to be going a long way towards giving her the best possible shot in there. I think at that point is when the locus of control shifts over to Katniss herself. All they can do is give her a fighting chance. From there, she has to win on her own. But after all, she is fighting for her life. But honestly, I'm not even sure it necessarily matters if she wins. That is the very, like, Alma coin part of it. Katniss winning is, of course, the best case scenario, but it's not the only available good outcome. So again, ideal scenario, Katniss wins, which likely means Peta dies. And from there, everyone rallies behind the girl who lost the boy she loves to the games. But even if Katniss herself dies inside of the games, that story is still in play. She's maybe not the actual symbol of the rebellion yet, the Mockingjay, but they have also made her incredibly desirable, someone to root for. They have forced the capital to kill star-crossed lovers. Not a good way to make friends. So even if she does die, she becomes a martyr and rallying point for the rebellion. And hey, outside chance just 
PETA wins, that's not bad, right? There is no doubt though that the plan also hinges on many unknown variables as well. For example, Katniss could just simply be killed during the opening bloodbath and all of a sudden you've got years of planning just down the drain. Fortunately for them though, Katniss sort of unwittingly ends up being a pretty spectacular soldier. Though it must be said that a lot of her success comes from the plot line that was specifically laid out for her, specifically falling in love with Peeta. But she still forms an alliance with Rue all on her own, reads lots of the signs, takes down several tributes, and is able to get out with Peeta thanks to the trick with the berries. It's honestly more than the rebellion ever could have asked for. Even inside of the games though, it still feels like Plutarch could be steering the ship a little bit. I mean, for example, the advent of the rule that allows for two tributes to exit if they're from the same district. I mean, it's 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 very specific and so obviously meant for Katniss and Peeta in particular. Other tributes could have benefited from this particular rule, but it immediately sets Katniss on track to find Peeta and re-spark the romance angle. Plus, beyond that, what a crazy rule change, am I right? Like 73 of these things have happened and this is the first time? Doesn't exactly feel like a coincidence, especially when you consider the fact that one of the game makers is a revolutionary. And guys, we need to take a quick pause right here to give a huge thank you to today's sponsor, Bespoke Post. Guys, of all the packages that are left on my front door throughout the month, I have got to say the Box of Awesome from Bespoke Post is always my favorite. You guys probably know this about me at this point in time, but I have been a subscriber of Bespoke Post long before they were ever a sponsor of the show. And it's because every box is just packed with unique and fun gear that is sourced from small businesses. Another thing you could have picked up about me at this point is that I also am one for a adventure, which is why I recently loved my Explore box. It comes with a really great backpack that can pack down super small. And my pro tip there is to bring that with you in your suitcase when traveling, fill it with goodies wherever you are, fill it up, and then bring it back with you on your trip home. It also comes with a great water bottle and a headlamp, which by the way, if you don't keep a headlamp with you, just like in your car or wherever you are about in the world, it is so convenient and handy and you never know when you're going to need it when you've got it. It's the best. Speaking of adventure though, I am so excited because next month I am going to one of my favorite places in the world for an entire week. I will be on the lake, which is why I ordered the Jam Box, which comes with a waterproof Bluetooth speaker. The point is, you just never really know just how useful the gear that you can get from Bespoke Post will ultimately end up being. And so if you're unsure on where to start, I highly recommend you just take their quiz over at boxofawesome.com and it'll guide you towards the best boxes for your lifestyle. Each box is valued at about $70 a piece and comes in at a fraction of that rate. It is free to sign up and you can skip, pause, or cancel at any time. Plus, you can get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and use promo code SUPER at checkout. Again, that's going to be boxofawesome.com, promo code SUPER for 20% off your first box. One last time, boxofawesome.com, promo code SUPER, link in the description down below. But from there, we'll move on from the first Hunger Games and on to Catching Fire and the third quarter quell. This part of the story becomes a lot easier to cover because we just simply know that all of the key players are actively involved in the rebellion. That is the plot of this book. That being said though, all of those players and their plans hinge on Katniss, who does not know she's part of the plan. She is just kept in the dark through all of it to her own dismay. But it is important to point out that Katniss's lack of realization that there is a plan doesn't mean that there wasn't was one. Wasn't one? You get it. The really big question for this one is how and when the flavor, as Plutarch puts it, of the 75th Hunger Games was determined, and even more importantly, by who? What we know in advance of heading into a quarter quell is that long in advance, the flavor of these games was determined, a unique spin, if you will. Whoever devised the quarter quell system had prepared for centuries of Hunger Games. The president removes an envelope clearly marked with a 75. He runs his finger under the flap and pulls out a small square of paper. Without hesitation, he reads, on the 75th anniversary, as reminders to the rebels that even the strongest among them cannot overcome the power of the capital, the male and female Female tributes will be reaped from the existing pool of victors. The first quarter quell, as a reminder, required members of the districts to vote on which of their populace would be subjected to the games, essentially forcing the families of the districts themselves to decide which of their neighbors was going to be sent off to fight for their life. The second quarter quell, and the one that's actually won by Hamish, requires the districts to send twice the number of tributes. And lastly, of course, the third quell is reaping tributes from the existing pool of victors. The when question spawns, because this is a very specific and unfortunate set of events for Katniss in 
particular. Had she not won literally the year prior, there would not have been a female victor from District 12 who was still alive. But the story, or more specifically, the Capitol, would like you to believe that this is just another unfortunate coincidence. These cards were written over 75 years ago. What timing? May the odds be ever in your favor. Is that what actually happened? Or is this a move on the Capitol's part to try to stomp out the spark that Katniss ignited last year in the prior games? Or even more recently than that, PETA and Katniss's actions on the Victory Tour, which caused a fair amount of mayhem. By this point, even we, the audience, know that uprisings are happening in the districts and that Katniss is the symbol of the rebellion. She needs to be stopped. So if you were to ask me, I would say that Snow absolutely orchestrated this particular set of events as a way to squash Katniss and the rising tide around her. This is Snow's turn to make his move. And yet he still doesn't even know who he's actually playing against. He doesn't know that Coin is part of this game, which also means that Coin's plan is working. Snow is focused on Katniss. He thinks she's the spark of the rebellion. It's like we said earlier, Snow has a tendency towards obsession that was hardwired into his brain and would likely be his undoing if he couldn't learn to outsmart it. Snow is so focused on Katniss that he can't see the bigger picture or the fact that his head game maker is a rebellion leader. Which is not to say that Snow isn't still throwing wrenches into their plan and making them adjust while on the fly. For example, again, going back to the conversation between Plutarch and Katniss during the Victor's tour, he reveals the image of the Mockingjay on his pocket watch. But he also reveals to Katniss later that at that moment, he just thought that she was going to be a mentor in the games not a participant. Which also brings us to another interesting era for this entire narrative. The third quarter quell has no victors. The arena is destroyed when Katniss fires the arrow through the chink in the armor. This is yet another moment where Coin and District 13 just sort of get lucky that Katniss is somehow able to pull through, but this was also their own plan from the very beginning. BD is actually the one who is actively attempting to accomplish this exact thing. He just gets knocked out in the process and Katniss figures it out and finishes it for him. But that's not really the point. The point is that they ultimately collect Katniss from the games and take her to District 13, where they were sort of operating under the assumption that Katniss would want to be the Mockingjay, but instead it takes some convincing. The rebels ensnaring me in the metal claw that lifted me from the arena, designating me as their Mockingjay, and then having to recover from the shock that I might not want the wings. And this is where another one of my own personal major questions come into play, which is what lengths did Coin go to to get Katniss to agree to be the Mockingjay? We know that it takes some work, not only to get Katniss to come around, which comes with some conditions. There is the pardoning of her fellow tributes, her ability to go hunting with Gale, and the allowance for Prim to be able to keep their cat Buttercup. But also there's the fact that Katniss is not a very effective actress. Did you know the line? I know, I know it, okay, I know it, I'm right. sorry. She's warming up. Okay, okay. So, bit of a new problem, and the way that they solve it is Hamish calls a meeting where everybody tries to sit down and find moments where Katniss actually moved them in some way. It's always these instances where she's not being told what to do, but acting on her own accord. It's volunteering for Prim, or singing to Rue, or knocking Peta out in order to save his life. The final conclusion is that Katniss is just not going to be able to fake it and needs to be sent into a real combat zone. Fine, says Coin, but let's take it one step at a time. Find the least dangerous situation that can evoke some spontaneity in you. I think this is where we're starting to realize how much of a strategic mastermind Coin actually is. She follows it up with, take her into eight this afternoon. There was heavy bombing this morning, but the raid seems to have run its course. District eight and what happens in District eight is actually the event within this saga that first led me down this entire path. Katniss arrives on scene and it's almost immediately apparent that Hamish is absolutely right. Katniss gets to see the wounded and realize the true impact that she can have on the overall rebellion. I hear my name rippling through the hot air, spreading out into the hospital. Katniss, Katniss Everdeen. The sounds of pain and grief begin to recede to be replaced by words of anticipation. From all sides, voices beckon me. I begin to move, clasping the hands extended to me, touching the sound parts of those unable to move their limbs, saying, hello, how are you? Good to meet you. Nothing of importance, no amazing words of inspiration, but it doesn't matter. Boggs is right. It's the sight of me, alive. That is the inspiration. This is pretty essential. It reframes 
everything for Katniss. It tells her that she's not just a piece being moved around a board. But it's not very long that she gets to process this particular piece of information before Boggs gets a message in his ear. And remember that specifically, Boggs gets the message in his ear. We're to get to the airstrip immediately, Boggs says, lifting me to my feet with one hand. There's a problem. What kind of a problem, asks Gail. Incoming bomber, says Boggs. He reaches behind my neck and yanks Senna's helmet up onto my head. Let's move. Now, stick with me because it doesn't necessarily stand out that much, but this next passage is kind of interesting. Unsure of what's going on, I take off running along the front of the warehouse, heading for the alley that leads to the airstrip, but I don't sense any immediate threat. The sky's an empty, cloudless blue. The street's clear except for people hauling the wounded to the hospital. There's no enemy, no alarm. Then the sirens begin to wail. Within seconds, a low-flying V-shaped formation of capital hover planes appears above us and the bombs begin to fall. Is it at all strange to you that Boggs received the message of the incoming bombers before the defenses of District 8 were even able to signal the alarms? He knows long enough in advance to have his entire crew halfway down the street before District 8 even knows what's happening. The hover planes appear and immediately start bombing the makeshift hospital that Katniss has just left. Those are defenseless, injured people. That is a very real war crime. It is straight up a tragedy and also possibly a masterstroke. If seeing and being able to touch the wounded helped Katniss understand what her greater role in all this could be, then this attack more than solidifies it. It's honestly even sickening to even consider this as a possibility, but ultimately Katniss's trip to District 8 provides exactly what Coin needs out of her in her role as Mockingjay. And if we burn, you burn with us. Which sadly led me to wonder, is that because this is exactly what Coin intended? Go back, if you will, to that moment again, where Haymitch is having the meeting about all of Katniss's best moments, volunteering for Prim, singing to Rue and saving Peta. He asks what they all have in common and Gail responds. They were all Katniss's, says Gail quietly. No one told her what to do or say. It's true, but also maybe not the same takeaway that President Coyne has inside of this meeting. Instead, she's one step ahead of an observation Gail himself is yet to make. It's not until a little while later when PETA has been rescued from the Capitol and returned to District 13, and Katniss has been relocated to District 2 when Gale finally arrives on the scene. I saw PETA yesterday through the glass. What'd you think, I ask? Something selfish, says Gale, that you don't have to be jealous of him anymore. My fingers give a yank and a cloud of feathers floats down around us. No, just the opposite. Gale pulls out a feather out of my hair. I thought I'll never be able to compete with that, no matter how much pain I'm in. He spins the feather between his thumb and forefinger. I don't stand a chance if he doesn't get better. You'll never be able to let him go. You'll always feel wrong about being with me. Katniss cares deeply for people who are in need, and Gale himself has experienced this kind of attention from Katniss after his whipping. These are the moments when Katniss is at her best, when she is volunteering for Prim, when she's singing to Rue, or when she's saving Peta's life. And do those things sound familiar? because they should, they are the things that Katniss has done that the crew has just pointed out. The things that Gail thinks are Katniss's own actions because no one is telling her what to do or say. I think Coyne realized this immediately, that if she was able to take Katniss to the broken and wounded, it would sway her, but not as much as if Katniss believed that President Snow and the Capitol destroyed those people moments later. So do you remember how I said that it was kind of unusual that Boggs was able to hear the message about the incoming bombers before the sirens were actually even going off? It's because it wasn't breaking news. And I'm not saying that Boggs himself knew any of this plan whatsoever, but I am saying that there was a plan. Coin was using those hovercrafts to attack her own people. These are moves on a board a sacrifice. But also, while Boggs may not have understood what exactly was happening inside of this particular situation, it doesn't mean that he doesn't eventually figure it out. Actually, I don't even think it's just Boggs who's the only one in the dark here. Cressida, who is like the producer on the ground with him, also seems to verify this story in real time. She is, of course, also on the earpiece in being fed her own information. Katniss, Cressida says, President Snow just had them air the bombing live. Then he made an appearance to say that this was his way of sending a message to the rebels. What about you? Would you like to tell the rebels anything? They are obviously in the thick of it, on the ground, 
real time. But they are not in front of a screen. To Cressida's knowledge, this is just true information. All things to keep in mind as we press forward. But either way, from here, we know that Katniss joins a special squad, Squad 451, or also known as the Star Squad. They are supposed to be the on-screen faces of the invasion. Something that the crew is not particularly happy about. By the masses. So we're not gonna fight. You do whatever you're ordered to do, soldier. It's not your job to ask questions. All of whom would far prefer just to be in actual combat. But this is just so fitting, isn't it? To have them on camera. I think Finnick says it best. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to the 76 Hunger Games. Now, despite the fact that they're not actually supposed to be in any danger, chaos almost immediately ensues. Boggs himself steps onto a landmine, something that eventually proves to be fatal, but not before he makes a move that nobody expects. He transfers his hollow, essentially the thing that marks his position and leadership, over to Katniss. Unfit for command, transfer the prime security clearance to squad 451 soldier Katniss Everdeen. As a reminder in this particular situation, Boggs second in command is a woman by the name of Jackson from District 13. In case you're keeping track, second in command also means she's pretty much the obvious choice for who the hollow should have gone to. But with his last words, Boggs pulls Katniss in and says, don't trust them, don't go back, kill PETA. Do what you came to do. Since the bombing in District 8, it seems like Boggs has figured something out. Either way though, Jackson obviously doesn't take super kindly to the fact that Boggs chose Katniss over her and immediately commands Katniss to transfer the ownership to her instead. At this point, Katniss is just essentially inventing wildly an explanation as to why this is what was supposed to happen. I'm on a special mission for President Coyne. I think Boggs was the only one who knew about it. Jackson obviously doesn't believe her. I don't believe you, says Jackson. As your current commander, I order you to transfer the prime security clearance over to me. But then unexpectedly and also kind of amazingly, someone else corroborates Katniss's story. Cressida! It's true, that's why we're here. Plutarch wants it televised. He thinks if we can film the Mockingjay assassinating Snow, it will end the war. Even Katniss has no idea why Cressida is standing up for her inside of this moment. But I think I know why. I think while they were all in District 8, she was told that President Snow had aired those bombings. And since then, both her and Boggs discovered it was all a lie. The discovery that Coin herself will go to extraordinary lengths to seize power, maybe even as far as President Snow himself. So consider this. We just said how Coin may have understood that Katniss seeing the wounded would be a great way to sway her to be a better Mockingjay. And how she may have even been willing to bomb her own wounded soldiers in this effort. But as ever with Coin, she may have had another outcome that she was angling for entirely. Just simply have Katniss killed in the process. Again, if we go back to that meeting, what is the best thing everybody keeps saying about Katniss? What is her top quality, if you will? Not listening. This is not a particularly great characteristic of a highly influential person in your society when you are trying to rule with an iron grip. What she needs is someone who will listen. She is the one who sends Katniss to the hospital and then it gets bombed. Coincidence? She certainly wants you to think so, but just imagine for a second that Katniss does die. They can air snow bombing wounded people and the Mockingjay being killed as a martyr at the same time. Coin doesn't care about Katniss. She only cares about winning. And if Katniss's death can help her achieve that, then so be it. And it's not even hard to believe that she would pull the stunt based on how Katniss's raid of the Capitol eventually ends. All of which will ultimately come to a head with my next rather complicated question, which is, is President Snow lying? I thought we'd agreed never to lie to each other. Surprisingly, throughout this entire narrative, we don't really spend an awful lot of time with President Snow. He's more of a fixture of the story than a character in it. But the real and first proper time we get an exchange with him goes all the way back to right after Katniss's first Hunger Games win. She is the victor and she has managed to do something that no one else has ever done before. Bring her fellow tribute back home with her. The way in which she's been able to ensnare the attention of the citizens of Pan Am is not something that he underestimates. Which again, if you've read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, you know exactly why President Snow knows better than to underestimate a girl from District 12. His concern is that the world will discover that Katniss was playing all of them. And then in a fraction of time, the whole system collapses. 
It must be a fragile system if it can be brought down by just a few berries. That her romance with Peta inside of the games isn't how it appeared. And so the very first thing he ever says to her is, I think we'll make this whole situation a lot simpler by agreeing not to lie to each other, he says. What do you think? It's the fact that this is the basis for their relationship from the very beginning that can make the rest of everything else seem very confusing. But here's why it's important. Let's again shoot back forward to the ending of Mockingjay and the raid on the Capitol. The rest of Katniss's crew has either been separated from her or killed in combat. She is alone. She's in front of the president's mansion where a group of children has been enclosed in a barricade and surrounded by peacekeepers. It's almost even too sad to describe, but once again, hovercrafts appear with the capital seal on the side and drop parachutes, just like in the Hunger Games. These by the children recognize the parachutes and believe them to be food or medicine or aid, but they're not. A wave of bombs goes off and even the surrounding peacekeepers seem very surprised. I can tell the peacekeepers didn't know that this was coming by the way they are yanking away the barricades, making a path to the children. Another flock of white uniforms sweeps into the opening, but these aren't peacekeepers, they're medics rebel medics. This is obviously the moment where Katniss spots Prim running directly into the fray as a medic. Then I am pushing through the crowd just as I did before, trying to shout her name above the roar. I'm almost there, almost the barricade, when I think she hears me. Because for just a moment, she catches sight of me, her lips form my name, and that's when the rest of the parachutes go off. It's really just never not sad. And in a lot of ways, that's all that matters. But this is the day that the capital ultimately falls and President Coyne becomes the new leader of Pan Am. So again, I go back to the question, is President Snow lying to Katniss? After all, he's been the primary adversary of the entire story, the, the key villain, if you will. He's the symbol of everything that's wrong with the capital and the way that this world works. The same capital, which is of course known for the Hunger Games, AKA sending in children to kill each other as a way to keep the districts in control. And after this attack in front of the president's mansion, Katniss doesn't speak for weeks on end until she accidentally encounters President Snow in his quarters or the Rose Garden. And I'll be honest and say, I've never really known exactly how to interpret this particular exchange. Like we know that Snow is a snake. Like, is he still just playing Katniss all the way up to the end? There are so many things we should discuss, but I have a feeling your visit will be brief. So first things first, he begins to cough. And when he removes the handkerchief from his mouth, it's redder. I wanted to tell you how very sorry I am about your sister. He goes on to explain what a waste of life the bombing of the children was. Anyone could see that the game was over by that point. In fact, I was just about to issue an official surrender when they released those parachutes. It just feels so convenient, doesn't it? Like, I was just, I was just about to give up when that happened. But inside of this discussion, he also makes some points that seem to hold more water. Well, you really didn't think I gave the order, did you? Forget the obvious fact that if I'd had a working hovercraft at my disposal, I'd have been using it to make an escape. All manipulation aside, it's a fairly reasonable point, but listen to this next bit. The idea that I was bombing our own helpless children instantly snapped whatever frail allegiance my people still felt to me. There was no real resistance after that. Did you know it aired live? Aired live. It's the exact same thing that Cressida was told President Snow himself did after the bombings in District 8. But then he says, I'm sure he wasn't gunning for your sister, but these things happen. And I'm once again back to wondering if he's just manipulating her because quite frankly, that sounds pretty manipulative. In this moment though, one way or another, the effect is working. Katniss is starting to remember conversations that happened back at District 13. I'm not with Snow now. I'm in Special Weaponry back in 13 with Gale and Beatty, looking at the designs based on Gale's trap that played on human sympathies. The first bomb killed the victims. The second, the rescuers. Remembering Gale's words, BD and I have been following the same rule book President Snow used when he hijacked PETA. It feels like Snow has Katniss on the ropes and he ties the whole thing together beautifully. My failure was in being so slow to grasp Cohen's plan. I've been watching you and you watching me. I'm afraid we've both been played for fools. Again, this is that very weakness that is outlined about Coriolanus Snow in chapter one of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, a tendency towards obsession that was hardwired into his brain and would likely be his undoing if he couldn't learn to outsmart it. But for Snow and my own personal question, it all comes down to this last bit of the exchange. I refuse for this to be true. Some things even I can't survive. I utter my first words since my sister's death. I don't believe you. Snow shakes his head in mock disappointment. 
Oh, my dear Miss Everdeen, I thought we had agreed not to lie to each other. How is this to be interpreted? Is Snow referring to some type of absolute truth about himself here? Essentially saying something along the lines of like, I may be cruel, but I do not lie. Or is he accusing Katniss of lying? Like she says, I don't believe you. And he's saying, yeah, you do. One way or another though, this exchange has an impact. When it all comes down to it, Katniss has walked out for the execution of this man who has wreaked havoc on her life. And she has one single arrow in her quiver. She knocks it and the point of my arrow shifts upward. I release the string and President Coin collapses over the side of the balcony and plunges to the ground, dead. Through the stunned crowd, Katniss can only hear one thing. Snow's laughter, an awful gurgling cackle accompanied by an eruption of foamy blood. When the coughing begins, I see him bend forward, spewing out his life until the guards block him from my sight. His laughter here, to me, has always been the ultimate kicker. Snow knows that there is no way he's making it out of this situation. He is at the end of his road. Even if he's not executed here, his health is not good and he is completely surrounded by adversaries. So was this last act of his just a stab at being able to control one last thing? Like Coin may have taken him and his capital down, but he could still go down swinging, still laying that last final blow just through his considerable cunning. But I personally think that telling the truth is an absolute about his character. He's not lying. Coin bombed her own people and Prim in the process. And again, going back to District 8, I don't even think this is the first time she's done it because she's just as cruel as Snow. And the real nail in the coffin that she did have something to do with this final bombings must come down to the fact that she is proposing one last Hunger Games. In lieu of these barbaric executions, we hold a symbolic Hunger Games. For the record, a completely terrible idea. And yet, Katniss agrees to it? Why? If you'll recall, this decision is left in the hands of the few remaining victors of the past Hunger Games. Speedy, Peta, and Annie all correctly oppose this idea. Joanna and Inabaria are both for it, so it comes down to Katniss and Haymitch. I weigh my options carefully, think everything through, keeping my eyes on the rose. I say, I vote yes for Prim. Haymitch, it's up to you, says Coin. A furious Peta hammers Hamish with the atrocity he could become party to, but I can feel Hamish watching me. This is the moment then, when we find out exactly just how alike we are and how much he truly understands me. In case this isn't clear, Katniss isn't for this final Hunger Games at all. What she realizes inside of this moment is that Coin's suggestion of another Hunger Games at all makes her just as bad as Snow, that she could be capable of sacrificing others' lives in order to achieve her own goals, that she may bomb her own wounded to sway the opinion of one person or an entire pen full of children to end the war, that she would hold the very games they have all fought to destroy. It's proof that Alma and Snow are simply different sides of the same coin. So again, Katniss was never for this last Hunger Games. She just needed to agree long enough to be given the opportunity to fire the last arrow at her final enemy, which Coin tells her is Snow, but Katniss is always at her best when she's not following orders. <sighs> Guys, as always, be sure to let me know what do you think of this particular theory and what do you think about us covering The Hunger Games? It's a story that I actually do truly love. Uh, be sure to let us know in the towel section down below. But in the meantime, if you have been comfortably sitting in a chair watching this entire video and you would like some more long form content from us, you can check out this video right here, which outlines the entire Pixar theory up through 2022, or this video right here, which we call Dumbledore's Big Plan and proves how Dumbledore had been pulling the strings all throughout Harry's career in the wizarding world. Otherwise guys, until next time, bye.